Welcome to our podcast, Decarb Districts, where we, in five episodes, explore the role of district energy in the green transition. My name is Susanne Tull, and in this fourth episode, we'll talk about digitalization in the district energy sector. So we'll talk about what's behind the buzzword of digitalization, what's the actual role of digital solutions for decarbonized energy system, what's best practice today, and which technologies will have the biggest impact in transforming the sector in the future. To put this puzzle together, we have invited two experts from the industry, Olivier Racle, who is the Director for District Heating and Cooling Solutions at energy company Engie, and Yuka Aho, who is the founder of the Finnish startup Leanheat, which is specialized on energy optimization. And to start right away with a very difficult question, Yuka, if you had to put it in one word, What is the added value of digitalization for the district energy sector or more generally for the decarbonization of the energy system? Um, to me, it's quite simple. It's, it's, uh, the value is money. And this may sound a little bit aggressive, but, uh, but I think that uh, when we use digitalization, uh, it's basically a catalyst for efficiency. So basically, we can uh, avoid making some of the investments when we do uh, investments to digital uh, technology. What would be such investments that you could avoid with the help of digitalization? Well, let's see. Like, um, let's say that there's a district heating network today. There's a lot of uh, overcapacity in the system, so that it is easier to run with uh, human intelligence. When we have artificial intelligence or digitalization running the networks, we can have less of this surplus, uh, both in the capacity of energy production, but also the amount of energy produced each day. So we basically take out, out these uh, extra surpluses here and there, and that brings us efficiency and also helps the environment. Thanks. So basically, um, efficiency, and that's also very, very concrete financial savings. Exactly. Olivier, Olivier, what about you? In one word, what would be the added value of digitalization for you? So to be transparent, in one word, I would say as well, efficiency at the time being. So energy efficiency is really the added value of the right now. If we stay on that a bit, um, so we, so you agree digitalization can increase the energy efficiency. Mm. And I think it's also, yeah, We also say that it increases the efficiency really along the entire supply chain of or the entire energy value chain from, from source over distribution to use. And we also sometimes talk about end-to-end -end optimization. Um, can you say a bit about why, why it is so important for the functioning of the future energy system to have this digitalization throughout the entire value chain? So in the district energy network, but as well in, in buildings, on the source side, and so on. So I, I just wanted to say that UG systems are becoming more and more complex. Uh, we are right now talking about more and more decentralized systems based on a very large range of new technology. So I'm talking about boilers, but as well heat pumps, solar, geothermal solutions, and so forth. So we, we have right now to manage uh, decentralized systems with several points of production, with several energy as a, a primary energy to, to, uh, to feed the, the system. And digital tools are now totally needed to better manage those new assets. So to be able to constantly align the production and the demand, 
uh, in order to reduce as much as possible all the losses, the formal losses, and improve the overall efficiency of the system as a whole. And the knowledge of the use side is really, really key to better operate and optimize our system so far. So digital is really playing right now key role in order to align the production and the distribution to bring the added value, which is energy efficiency once again. I agree what Oliver you're saying that uh, that um, uh, aligning the customer and the production is the key and uh, it, it's not long ago that uh, in energy production uh, customer was called heat load uh, so so I think that's that's the key now that we start talking about customers and align the production to the customers and uh, if I look at the uh, energy systems we have today and had yesterday uh, we just produced, for example, in heating, we produced heat all the time. And the assumption was that customer needs the same amount of heat at every single time of the day, at all situations. But the reality is that maybe the customer would be ready to change their behavior if they knew about uh, the impact uh, the production is having on, on both economical impact, but also climate impact. So, so in reality, there can be hours of day that are 100 times more expensive or more pollutive to the environment, uh, but this is not exposed to the customers in any ways. And uh, to me, end-to-end -end optimization means that uh, we try to automatically optimize as much as possible so that we can avoid these expensive peak hours, but it's not so hard to foresee also a future where customers would be ready to really reduce their consumptions, uh, consumption during the periods that are most hurtful for the environment. So you could also say that it's the digitalization maybe also enables kind of a, a new level of demand-driven optimization of the of the entire system. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. To, and, and to be really practical, we had a situation that in a network in Finland, they had a facility that hadn't been used for 10 years, a peak uh, boiler facility in a network. Uh, that hadn't been used for 10 years. And the only reason they had invested into that boiler was because it's it's a reserve boiler. So if the main CHP gets broken down, then they use it. And, and based on statistic pro probabilities, they would need it once in 10 years. But the, what they started to think about is that, could they ask their customers that, are you okay if once every 10 years, uh, we have a slight reduction in indoor climate for four hours or five hours, would that be okay if you save this and that much of money in your bill? And these type of questions are important that if we don't expose these questions to the customers, I think we will never get to the full, uh, the optimal situation in the network. Olivier, as, uh, as you're working for, for Engie, um, do you have any experience already where you are using digital tools to to maybe do what you could just do? just uh, described or in general communicate better, involve better your customers? Getting um, a deep insights in heating networks is very hard. So uh, most of the design and operation is right now based on conservative measures or estimates. Uh, the behavior of, of our consumers, the weather condition, the system degradation, the flow, have a kind of a critical impact on our network efficiency and reliability. And those factors are very difficult to monitor, model, and predict. So currently, 
we are used to using static model, if I can say that, um, ignoring a bit the dynamic of a network. Therefore, as mentioned by Yuka, the peak demand most of the time is really uh, ex exaggerated and uh, the dominating choices on the system design and operation are based on uh, static models and, and uh, previous, uh, previous uh, settings, if I can say that. Unfortunately, this leads to a capacity install, which is most of the time overestimated by almost 50 to 80 percent. This leads to lots of losses in terms of pumpings, to be clear with you, either for a heating or cooling system. We, could, we, could, we know for sure that uh, the pumpings uh, generates right now uh, uh, some losses about 10 to 50 percent of the electricity, electricity consumption for the distribution. So my point to your to your question is that we decided years back to develop our in-house uh, tool, dynamic model, model tool, in order to give advice to our operators in order to help them to take or to make better decisions and to better operate our system and, and to optimize our, our system. This dynamic tool take into consideration the real condition of the functioning of, of the asset. So the, the, the demand and the behavior of our customer, uh, the running para parameters, the technical para parameters that are, that are to be made, and the weather condition and the maintenance, for instance, of an asset or, or any, anything of that kind, in order, again, to be able to constantly adapt the production to the distribution and to reduce, uh, to reduce uh, the losses. So this tool that we are deploying right now worldwide in our, in our current operation is already very powerful and allows us to generate savings on the primary energy use about something between 3 to 15 percent, which is huge when you are thinking about a, a district network uh, like we have one in, in Paris uh, with uh, 4,000 megawatt, uh, megawatt installed and uh, a length of 500 kilometers. We are talking in, bat, in fact in, in, in millions of euros. Those are some very impressive numbers like three to 15 percent savings on primary energy and and maybe millions of of savings in euros um and and exactly what you just mentioned it brings us to to an next question that i'm very, very eager to hear your your replies um do you think that there's any specific technologies like demand response like internet of things and so on that that you think will be really a game changer to, to me, the next game changer for that specific, you know, uh, focus, so the digitalization of our of our uh, assets, is really to me uh, artificial intelligence and more specifically uh, the machine learning. Um, we already do know that machine learning will help us to improve the tool that I very quickly described to you in order to not only to better design our future assets, but also to act as a, a better optimizer for our DHE, uh, DHE system uh, and really uh, a better tool in order to manage all those assets and generate further savings 
taking once again taking into account several parameter parameters such as demand forecast, energy prices forecast, weather condition, ongoing operation. And again, machine learning will help improving the demand forecasting, the modeling of our behavior, and the demand and supply matching. This will be for us, uh, to us, I'm sorry, a, a game changer in the future. Machine learning and artificial intelligence as a game changer. Yuka, I have a feeling that you will agree to that, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say here that I'm a little bit biased here because I'm uh, I'm representing a company that's uh, or a business working on on artificial intelligence and demand response. But um, to me, if I look at AI, it will change the world profoundly in many different industries. And uh, to me, all the industries where we need to do complex decisions in a frequent manner are really good industries to be transformed by AI. And uh, if we think about energy sector, I think it's one of the best of those. There's a lot of decisions that are being done every day by operators uh, that are complex, that have complex relations to each other, and we need to do them you know, every hour. Uh, and if we take a little bit more practical example, if, if you think about a car that you drive today, uh, there's a lot of technology, digital technology, optimizing the fuel use, efficiency, etc. So for example, when you turn the wheel or press the pedal, it's uh, in most of the modern cars, it's not directly anymore affecting the motor. Instead, it's going to the digital systems and then the digital system is deciding on how to use the physical reality of the engine, etc. And this all happens in the blink of an eye. And many of these technologies there, they are designed to save lives, improve fuel economy, prolong the lifetime of the car, etc. And this has been done for a long time now. Uh, for example, the ABS brakes and all that. And uh, when we look at energy sector, I, I think uh, all this could happen there and will happen there. It's, it's not uh, uh, it's not dreaming that uh, maybe this could happen sometime. I think it's more a matter of when it will happen. And that's what mm. it was really good that Oliver brought up this example that that uh, for example, the first step of doing this is to go from static. Uh, static optimization on the primary side to a dynamic one. Uh, then there are many steps we can take, for example, connecting the users to the system so that we can actually act, uh, have an effect on on how the users are using energy. Then we can optimize the whole system even further. And of course, using the AI AI to, uh, uh, to optimize uh, all the parts of the network, then we can I think that there's a lot of future that we haven't yet seen. So, so what you said, Oliver, the three to fifteen percent on the primary side, I have a strong belief that there's a march that we can bring this up to a totally another level in the next ten years. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And from from what you're saying, you got the question for us a bit for me. How far are we then actually today in leveraging these solutions, or is there still still a long way to go? Or do you maybe have some best practice examples also? Yeah, I, definitely I do. So I think, at least to me, it seems like that we have a very solid beginning. So if I look at DC heating companies around the world, a lot of pilots are being made. Uh, but often these pilots are uh, some parts of different parts of end-to-end -end optimization. So, so we are doing pilots in different areas, uh, but we are still uh, maybe lacking these full end-to-end -end optimized networks. So, so um, 
So let's say that one day utilities might have energy products that are optimized for end-to-end optimized heating. So, so this would be a part of the business model. Uh, this we are there we are not yet, but I think we will soon be. For example, we are working with Fortum in Finland in the city of Espoo, and and there the idea is that uh, that end-to-end optimization is one of the key parts to make Espoo the city of Espoo CO2 neutral. Uh, and uh, I really believe that we can have a great impact there. So, so a lot has been done, but I think that the hardest parts are still there ahead of us. It, it is and it will be very painful to make this part of the everyday business. And it's, it's, it's like a really huge ship that we are turning and it takes a, takes a long while. Olivier, do you um, actually share that view? Because I mean, as NG, you are one of the companies that actually have to do this transition. Uh, do, do you experience that it is, well, a good start, but maybe still quite painful process to go? A good start, this is for sure. And again, we, we are deploying that kind of tool right now uh, almost everywhere. But ju- just maybe a, a word on the end-to-end optimization. I just want to highlight to highlight the fact that, from a legal point of view, right now we are not really what we call end to end. So we are responsible for what we call the primary loop, and then usually you have a kind of a secondary loop uh, within the building uh, uh, in order to distribute and to serve all the customer in a, in a specific premise, for, for instance. So from a legal point of view, we we can't say that we gonna optimize the end to end process. We still need to to work on the inbuilding side, to be clear with you. So from, again, a technical point of view, we are able right now to better optimize, to manage all the distribution line from the mechanical room within within a specific building, the distribution lines and the production. The next step, certainly, the next step we will be able to involve the people, if I can tell that, to engage the, 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 the consumers in order to help um, us to reduce the carbon footprint and CO2 emission related to heating production or cooling production. To me, this is certainly the, the next step. But we, we will have to work both ways, you know, from a, a legal point of view, but as well from a technical point of view. To be honest with you and transparent with you, to me, from a technical point of view, The question is only when. The the technology is, to me, more or less ready. We are right now able to generate lots of saving we were not able to identify, let's say, 10 years ago. For instance, we just won a contract in Ottawa, and the the, the aim of Ottawa is to decarbonize the base load for the district and cooling systems in in Ottawa. Uh, And the solution we came up with uh, is to interconnect, to lower the supply temperature, to interconnect this, the, the the networks, and to adapt the supply temperature either for cooling or heating, in order to uh, to meet the technical requirement and and the customer demand. Doing so, we are going to improve by at, at the time being we are going to improve by 25% the energy efficiency of the whole system, 
and reduce by 40% the carbon footprint of Ottawa uh, of those systems uh, before 20, 2030. So the digital tools I mentioned helps us a lot in doing so and in being able to commit to achieving those kind of targets. And the last step, it, it's going to be a problem of, you know, the last last mile delivery, if I can say that, will be to to think about the system as a whole. So from the production to the distribution within the building. Right now, from a legal point of view, we are not totally able or allowed to, to do that. This is a main barrier that we will have to to. Uh, to handle in the future, if I can say that, if we want to go further, and to go further meaning to, again, to reduce as much as possible the CO2 emission related to heating and cooling. And cooling sorry. So are we actually on the technology side way further, way ahead than on the legal side, on the policy framework, Olivier, because you mentioned this as a, as a major barrier. Can you be a bit more concrete? What are actually the, the barriers on, on the legal side to, to digitalization? Yeah, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say a few words about the French market, for instance, which is basically, you know, I have been working in, in North America and uh, in, in, in Europe. And from a legal point of view, all the contracts are more or less the same. So we are talking about concession contract. So you operate a system, you have to uh, design, build maybe, and operate and maintain a system on behalf of a city, for instance, for a specific duration. And usually you operate a system which is the production, the distribution, and the energy transfer station which are located within a building. This is a scope of the assets that you will have to operate, renovate, refurbish, maintained throughout a specific duration uh, set forth in the contract. What we are not allowed to do is to work within the building from a legal point of view, once again. However, I have to say that you, you can do whatever you want on the production, on the distribution, on the energy transfer station. If within the building there are lots of losses for any kind of reason, there are bad behaviors in terms of return temperature, for instance, and stuff like that. All the, 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 the good thing that you will have done on your side on the production will be vanished, if I can say that, uh, due to the fact that on the inbuilding side, the level of requirement is not exactly the same. So, and it, the, the problem is almost the same everywhere. So what we did in Ottawa, for instance, we had two separate contracts, one for the primary loop and another one for the secondary. So we will be in charge as NG, as an operator uh, of operating the primary loop. But we had an agreement with the federal government of Canada. They will be responsible for the secondary loop. And what we did in the contract, we specified all the technical requirements to be met in order to be sure that all the savings we identify on the primary will be effectively done and achieved since they are going to do the exact same effort on the secondary loop. Right now, almost everywhere in the world, there is no kind of a, a full contract, an end-to-end contract. It, according to me, it doesn't exist. This is certainly something we will have to improve in the future and maybe to tweak or change in the future 
uh, again, to be able to operate a system as a whole, as a whole system and holistic system. And this challenge of bringing the primary and the secondary side together, do you think that will be solved with new business models, as you're also describing now in, in, in Ottawa, or is there also some policy change needed? Both. We will have to think about new business model, to be clear with you, since right now, uh, and depending uh, depending on the contract and depending on the area, but most of the time, our clients, in fact, are, are real estate managers. If you do want to have the end users as your customer, you will have to have the possibility to measure their consumption. Right now, usually it doesn't exist. So you do not have any metering system for each of the premise of a specific building, for instance. Uh, yeah, maybe start, if I... Yeah, yeah, yeah I have some... Yeah, yeah, so... so uh, uh, I think, uh, Oliver, you're actually getting to the real barrier here that the, the secondary side, how do we do that? And I, I think this applies to all the geographies. So, so the mm. traditional area of energy or utilities has been on the primary side. Maybe in some countries it's different. Like, uh, for example, in Poland, the comp energy company is uh, responsible all the way to the radiator. But most of the case, it's it's to the basement of the buildings. Mm. Mm. And and then when we talk about optimization, it means that uh, the users of energy are. Uh, responsible for optimizing their energy use. And today, the parameter for optimization is the pricing of heating. So that's the way the customer prices. You, customer uses the price and, and against that pricing model will optimize the use of their heating. But what I'm seeing and we are seeing uh, is that in future, when uh, there is going to be much more fluctuation on the on the uh, or volatility on the energy prices on the primary side because of the uh, in increase of renewables, this will mean that if we use that model, we would need to have a really, really complex pricing model that we expose to the customers. And then you have customers who pay, let's say, energy cost is maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a building with 50,000 each year for heating. Uh, they don't have the experience. They don't have the resources they don't have the best knowledge on how to optimize that building. And the question really is that who will do this optimization on the secondary side? Who, who is the right party to do that? And to me, the, it is clear that the utilities are actually the best ones to do it because there's already an existing uh, legal contract with the customers and there's a lot of trust and security around this relationship between the, between the uh, for example, in heating, the, the consumer of the heat and the producer of the heat. But then the real boundary is that how can the utility take this leap from in terms of legally that how should I offer the contract to my customer if I want to actually optimize the secondary side? And and uh, we have done some of these examples already in Finland, even in some smaller networks, uh, full deliveries where uh, where it was done in a manner that that the utility would do a new product, new district heating product to their own uh, District heating portfolio and say that you can still use the existing products, but you can upgrade to this uh, this uh, smart product, uh, and uh, the utility would guarantee that the customer will uh, will save some money and save environment when trans going to that product. And when the customer would change to that product, the utility would invest into the required infrastructure to ensure that the demand side is also optimized. And what was astonishing there was that we were 
uh, we were thinking that it can take years for the customers to actually approve or change to that product. But uh, in a matter of three months, uh, we got two thirds of the uh, suitable building stock or the users to actually change to that product. And uh, but, but this is the type of things that we need to experiment. And this is the type, this is the area that we haven't. Uh, uh, if we look at the energy sector globally, this is the part which has been less traveled. We'd like to talk about technology. We like to talk about the. Uh, uh, you know, the acronyms and IoT and even AI is such. But in the end, the real question is that how do we get the utilities to have the courage to jump to a new type of business models uh, when it's in the very core of the utility that, you know, it's the bread and butter of the utility. How do we, what do we uh, sell to the customer and what do they pay for that? And of course, there's a big barrier for the utilities to do a change there. I hear that you say... Um what is needed is also here a change of mindset and an exploration maybe of new business models on the side of the utility. Um, same question to you as I asked to Olivier. Do you think there's anything that policy can do actually to, to help here? I think there's a lot that policy can do. First of all, of course, when we go to this end-to-end -end optimization, it would be very beneficial that there would be some kind of uh, recommendations uh, EU-wide which could take some of the barriers out so that the utilities uh, going into this end-to-end -end direction wouldn't feel like they are exposing or taking huge risks in terms of uh, legal side uh, when starting to do end-to-end -end optimization. That's one part. Then the second part is that um, when these utilities uh, are thinking about investments, I think the traditional way of operating at the utilities is that let's say that okay, the climate change is happening. What we need to do is we need to change our production to be green. And for example, in Helsinki, the, in Helsinki they, the production is done with coal-based CHP today. And the question is that, how do we convert that coal-based CHP to something else? And all the discussion is around that. And okay, now the answer is that let's turn it to biomass. And there's a lot of support for, for the Helsinki utility to do that. Uh, but at the same time, what we fail to do is to have the discussion around that if we optimized the network fully, how much could we actually uh, reduce the primary side to uh, or reduce the required investments on the primary side? So what Oliver said here that, you know, dynamic simulation, we can get 15% out. So suddenly you can actually invest into a much smaller biomass plant when you're replacing the existing coal plant. But for that discussion to happen, I think the... There is policy frameworks and legal frameworks, especially around funding of these big facility replacements, uh, that that funding or that kind of schemes that are used for utilities to do these really big investments should be also extended to the demand side and make sure that when utilities are making these decisions, that decisions around demand side and production side, supply side, should be neutral so that the investments go to the area where we will get the best impact for the for the money used. So I think this is maybe uh, maybe in the industry this is called talk. You talk about sector coupling. So I think that's the that's the word that should be should be secured through the policy policy uh, decisions. And you are touching here actually upon a very interesting and very timely topic with sector coupling, sector integration. I may be a bit surprised that nobody has, has mentioned it before, because last week 
the, the European Commission actually published its its strategy for sector integration, or as they call it, energy system integration. And they also mention in the strategy that digitalization will be a key enabler for doing that, for connecting sectors, for, for using synergies, for making sure that uh, we apply energy efficiency first everywhere. Maybe a question to, to both of you, Olivier and, and Yuka. How do you see this? Where do you see here the role of digitalization and sector integration? Is it really yeah, such a game changer or is it really the key enabler that we need for that? Or what are your thoughts? We strongly believe that sector coupling is, is key for the for Europe in the future in order to, to again, to better optimize our system, but systems, not only heating and cooling system, but as well uh, electrical, electrical systems to generate uh, further savings and to, uh, to, uh, to favor, if I can say that, some synergies between uh, the different sectors, including in the future mobility. So definitely, Susan, I, this is something we are focusing on and we are working on. And again, you know, when I'm when I talked about uh, the complexity of those assets right now, which are becoming more and more decentralized, uh, I was referring only to heating and cooling systems. If you go beyond that, so in, if you think about sector integration, so you will have to connect, if I can tell that, the dots between the different uh, verticals, so power, mobility, heating, cooling. Can you just imagine the complexity of such a system? Already to operate a system, a decentralized systems, you have to take into account so many parameters that we do need right now digital tools. So if we go beyond that, if we are working right now tomorrow with power generation coming from a wind farm or a solar farm or biogas production or hydrogen production and then power production, if you want to connect all those dots, let me assume that it won't be feasible, feasible without any uh, without any digital tool in order to balance all those you know the production mean and to again to uh, optimize them and to operate them in the efficient way in order to meet the demand and to reduce as much as possible all the losses and to favor as much as possible all the synergies benefiting from, again, an excess of production and an excess of heat. So if you want to think about, you know, I don't know how to say that, an holistic approach, you will need definitely, you will need to be able to connect the dots and to, to, to manage all those systems thanks to a digital tool, this is for sure. And if I can just have one comment, if you look at uh, networks operated today or maybe yesterday in the system, you would have maybe a CHP, then you have peak load boilers, then you have an energy storage, and then you have some pumping stations, and then you have operators in operating room who are operating that system. And as Oliver said, uh, there's some surplus required for humans to control that in an efficient manner, uh, depending on the situation they are from, I think Oliver said 15 to 80 percent or something like that. But there's surplus that is needed uh, to run that. But as we look into the future, we will have more and more decentralized energy. So there will be more and more production spots in different areas of the network. We have uh, we have uh, demand response ability in the different substations. Uh, we will have more renewable resources. So, so the system will get complex. It's not, not only to the exponent of two. It will be 
it, it, it's a huge complexity addition to the system. And if we want to run this like we do today, so that we have some operators in in a, in the operating room, it will look a little bit same as as Neil Armstrong in Apollo mission. So there will be a lot of bells and whistles, and then there would be hundreds of people in the operating room helping these people making the right decisions. And I have to say that I don't believe that this is going to happen, that we will still do this based on fully only human cognition. So so there will be so many decisions that the only way to go is to, to have uh, digital tools uh, help people uh, reach optimal decisions for energy production and demand. Last question. We have been talking now a lot about the benefits of digitalization, how the future smart energy system will look like, what are the technologies and the policies needed for that. How long do you think it will take until we have these kind of smart energy systems or district energy systems as you have been describing them? I think the transition will it, will it will happen in an exponential manner. So when now I talk about fully optimized, so including the end to end from primary side to secondary side. So I have a strong belief that it will take around three years that we will have some of the leading energy companies have fully smart networks. So some areas, some of the networks will be fully smart from demand, uh, from the user to the fuels. And that will happen in three years. And then uh, I think... The rest of the market will follow this, but it will be a long tail. I think it will take around seven years after that to reach 80% of the full potential. So this is my estimate, and probably it will be it will go wrong, but at least uh, this is how I feel right now. So in 10 years, we will have 80% uh, of the suitable networks fully end-to-end optimized. Olivier, your estimate? We have a target of four years till uh, 2024 in order to better uh, improve our dynamic tool uh, using machine learning and artificial intelligence in order to better again, to better operate our systems so but we will do that on on the scope of our operation right now so the primary loop uh, as i mentioned my concern is that from legal point of view we discussed that point from new business model to be to be set up in the future This this will take time. I would say no less than 10 years. So you both estimate that it will take about 10 years until we've made the transition to a smarter, more integrated energy system. Thank you so much, both Olivier and Yuka, for joining us in this podcast episode. And thanks to everyone listening. If you want to learn more about digitalization in the energy sector, or sustainable heating and cooling in general, you can follow the links in the episode description or listen to the rest of the episodes of our DCAP Districts podcast. In the next and last episode, we talk about what policy framework is needed to drive the development of sustainable heating and cooling.